Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jano Lieber, chair and CEO of New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, better known as the MTA, the largest public transportation network in North America. In this role, Jano provides strategic, financial, and operational leadership for the organization, oversees long-range growth initiatives and short-term operational decisions and regulatory actions. He heads the MTA's board of directors, its senior leadership team, and a total workforce of more than 60,000 people. Jano's career is really interesting because it is varied. He spent time early in his career in journalism, but soon found his way to being a staffer. His first job in government was working in City Hall during the administration of Mayor Ed Koch, first on economic policy and later on transportation policy. After law school, he spent some time in the private sector as an attorney. And in 1994, he was asked to join the Clinton administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation, where he ultimately served as Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy. Jano returned to New York in the late 90s and has been a part of shaping the city ever since. While in the private sector, he has been a part of projects that anyone who visits New York probably knows a bit about. The new Moynihan Terminal at Penn Station, the ongoing transformation of the Port Authority bus terminal, and perhaps most visibly, and maybe even most importantly, the rebuilding of the World Trade Center area, which Jano oversaw as president of World Trade Center Properties. It's essentially impossible to live in New York, commute to New York, visit New York, without observing and being affected by Jano's past and current work. That is in part why I am so happy to present this conversation to you. We recorded it on Friday, September 8th. I hope you enjoy it. Jano Lieber, welcome to Staffer. Good to be with you. I'm really excited to be talking with you today, so thank you for joining. Um, I like to start these conversations with my guests just learning a little bit about where they grew up and what family life was like. And I know I know you grew up in New York, and I know you have two parents who are quite accomplished in their fields, but I'd love to learn more. Well, I grew up on the west side of Manhattan back in the bad old days when people were uh, fleeing New York for the suburbs. Um, but my parents uh, and a few other hardy souls uh, stuck around, and we had an amazing childhood and adolescence because of the independence that you have growing up in in new york i I was a a kid with a bus pass and a subway pass and two parents who worked and didn't pay undue attention and (laughs) so i had a lot of fun tooling around new york uh uh hopefully not getting into too much trouble but really having a lot of amazing experiences as a even even as a preteen uh i was was able to 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 uh, to take full advantage of the city so, I, you know, I know you went off to college, went to Harvard, um, but when you came out, you, you know, policy and transportation wasn't what you dove into. It was journalism first. So, yeah, I mean, well, that was that, that's an interesting point. So, um, I mean, it was really a summer job. I had a summer job at the New Republic, which was literally the most exciting place in terms of policy intellectuals that one could imagine at the time. It was, you know, great amazing thinkers and writers like, you know, Michael Kinsley and Rick Hertzberg, 
Um, and Charles Krauthammer, who wasn't quite as much of a right winger as he ended up at that time, and Mort Kondracki and Fred Barnes and so many others. Wow. And I just, I, I had the chance to be an intern and write a few articles and do a, a mess of research. And I got an amazing amount out of it in terms of the thought process and how to, how to debate and figure out big, serious issues, or at least have an opinion about them. But I found out I probably uh, was not going to be most effective as a, a writer about them, that I had, I needed more people to people contact. So that's what, in effect, uh, taught me a lesson that I was more suited for, uh, for government work than for journalism. <laughs> so when you came out, was that clear in your mind? Did you, did you immediately get into government and politics? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it was, it, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. And I, I was teaching tennis in the summer in the New York City public parks. And I, I literally remember standing on a subway platform with a, a bag of a dozen or 25 uh, cheapo tennis rackets that we used to, to help, you know, uh, kids mostly in poor neighborhoods learn how to play tennis. <laughs> and starting to think about New York City government, because I, I was passionate about New York City. And it was a moment, and this was when Ed Koch was the mayor, if, if you remember him. Of uh, it was a moment when it seemed like New York was on the move. It was a couple of years uh, after the, the blackout of 1977, um, and uh, New York was, was turning the corner and having a uh, a city government that was active uh, and and determined to accomplish things uh, was 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 exciting, and it gave me a chance to think about working on public issues. Now, I, what I mentioned before was I was a child Democratic political hack, so um, even long before I I got an internship at the New Republic, I was hanging uh. around Democratic politics on the west side of Manhattan. So I, I knew something about New York City politics and government, and I just didn't know where I would fit in. But I had an idea, and so I started to uh, go chase jobs. And so, uh, as I understand it, one of your first jobs, maybe your first job in government, was in the Koch administration as an advisor for transportation policy. Yeah. Um, did you did you go seeking out transportation policy as an area, or did that was that the opening and? That's why you took it. Well, Department of Full Disclosure, I worked for a, a, a year, a year and a half in the economic development operation first, and it was super interesting and dynamic, but it was mostly focused on what ultimately was a, uh, a mission that was impossible to accomplish, which was to keep manufacturing jobs in New York City. Um, then, you know, Chuck Schumer once said, to me about that issue, you can't make water run uphill. That the the reality that New York, which had been a great manufacturing town, was not going to be able to be a, a, an industrial city in terms of its economy. Um, that reality had already taken root. Um, but in the but in that year or so that I was working in economic development, I got really excited about transportation and about what was happening at the MTA, because that was the moment when. Dick Ravitch and then followed by Bob Kiley were really starting to turn around um, the, you know, the legend, the New York City subway system of legend, which was, you know, covered with graffiti and totally unreliable and broke down every five minutes. And it was among the things that really got me most excited. So I 
moved over to working in City Hall as an aide on transportation policy, as you said. Uh, I see. And, you know, Mayor Ed Koch, uh, brash, outspoken, um, uh, famously tenacious, all words that, you know, probably apply to the city of New York as well. Um, Tell me about working, you know, for him, near him? Like, what were the lessons that you took away from being in City Hall? Listen, I was a relatively junior person, although, you know, like less than two years out of college, I I had free access to City Hall and I, you know, was constantly around um, all of those, you know, the, the, the great leaders of the time. But um, but I was junior and, you know, my observation was uh, he, he was his attitude, and I heard him say it many times, was tell me what's the right thing to do. Let me worry about the politics. He would always push uh, the the policy aides not to think politically, but at least as we were briefing him and talking about options and situations, tell me about what the problem is and what's the, what are the options and what you think is the right thing to do. And he would always cut people off to say, let me worry about the politics. Usually that meant that he was ready to be brave and and to do something that was politically unpopular. Sometimes he offended a lot of people because, as you said, he was brash and willing to uh, make enemies. Sometimes even later in his career to do stuff that I disagreed with very strongly. But um, but I thought that was a great model uh, so that that you know, everybody in the room felt like the discussion was going to be focused on what are the practical options, what's the issue, and uh, let the let the political level worry about the politics. So I know you went to law school at NYU, um, but when you went off to law school, did you know that you wanted to still work in transportation, or was that you know did that come to you later? You know, I w- w- what happened was I. I knew I wanted to work in the in, in, in sort of the New York City uh, policy and and government environment. So I, I spent a lot of my time in law school uh, working on on learning enough about government law and land use to become an effective player in the sort of land use law uh, area. And in fact, I ended up taking a job as a young you know when I got out of law school at a firm that had the largest, uh, not the largest, but you know, one of the most prominent land use practices, that's zoning and thinking about how to reconcile uh, you know, public uh, policy with development for housing and commercial and uh, much else. Um, and you know, two months after I got there, that land use group of very senior distinguished uh, professionals got up and left for another firm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I ended up doing a lot of litigation and government law, but it wasn't necessarily in the land use environment. And some of it was in the transportation environment, but I wasn't obsessing about transportation. What happened was that when uh, when President Clinton was elected in 1992, um, I set my hat on going to work with, for the first Democratic administration in my adult life. And, um, and that was the agency and USDOT was the agency where I had some substantive expertise that might be relevant. And, and, and um, that's where I ended up. 
So you moved to Washington uh, to serve as Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy at USDOT, which, you know, that that department is gigantic. It covers every, you know, state in the union, every mode of transportation. Um, there must have been an enormous amount that you had to learn about the bureaucracy and also transportation policy with, you know, various different types and modes of transportation. How did you adapt? What I would say is I had to learn, as you say, so much, but it was not necessarily mostly about the policy stuff or even the regulatory technicalities. It was about bureaucracies and how stuff gets done in Washington. Because USDOT at that time, I'm not sure it's quite the same now, but at that time was really a holding company of uh, modal agencies, the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Aviation Administration, that time the Coast Guard was part of USDOT, that had their own programs and, more important, their own constituencies on Capitol Hill and their own agendas. So the Secretary of Transportation and the whole office of the Secretary, which I was part of, nominally running the policy shop, although I started as Deputy Assistant Secretary, uh, ultimately I moved up and, 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 and led the, the policy operation in the Secretary's office. The, we were, we were uh, I think, considered by some of those big bureaucracies that had their own programs, constituencies, and agenda to be nice people to be, you know, yes, yes, and ignored. Um, and uh, learning how to function in a complex bureaucracy and also for me, uh, given what I do now, learning how to create a more high functioning and unified bureaucracy to implement a coordinated policy that, that we're all on, on board for. That was the biggest lesson because there were, you know, there were some major policy issues where I was in the middle of it. And but frequently, you know, they I ended up handling stuff that the smart guys at the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Aviation Administration knew was too hot for them to handle in Congress. So they would send me up to the hearing um, and to get to get thrashed by uh, a few congressmen or in many in some cases, many congressmen. Um, and uh, I, I learned a lot about bureaucracies and about entrenched interests and how to create what I think is a, a, a more purpose-directed uh, purpose and unified government organization, which is what we're trying to do at the MTA. What are some of the things that you, you know, at the MTA are, are, that you're trying to implement to avoid some of those, you know, problems, rivalries? I mean, I think, that, I think that, that, you know, the first thing is that we're, we're getting rid of this idea. Like the MTA for a long time was... Uh, New York City Transit, which ran the subway system and the buses, which is, you know, a relic of the subway system created in the early 1900s, um, which is, you know, or actually three subway systems that were merged and then ultimately bank went into bankruptcy and the city of New York ended up owning them and they handed it to the state agency, the MTA. And then on top of it was two commuter railroads, which are very separate, Long Island Railroad and Metro North, and Robert Moses' legacy, what was called the Tribal Bridge and Tunnel Authority, TBTA, which is part of MTA as MTA Bridges and Tunnels. So you had these four separate organizations 
that each had their own bureaucracies, not dissimilar in some ways from US DOT. And we have, again, um, not, you know, the, the, the work isn't over, but we've kind of really unified them by eliminating a lot of the duplicate. I mean, there are all these duplications of legal departments and finance departments and labor relations departments and uh, IT departments and so on, and creating a much more unified uh, organization with one of all those things instead of four of all those things. It's not just bureaucratics, though. Um, it's getting everybody focused on uh, you know, one agenda. And a lot of that for the MTA is about equity, about how do we make sure that we're, we're serving uh, people who depend on mass transit, which is the vast majority of New Yorkers, um, not just catering to the different constituencies who like us, whether they're political constituencies or riders, but that we're serving the goal of equity and serving more riders and creating a single system that now connects people from Montauk to Dutchess County um, and that we're not treating people who, uh, for example, who uh, don't pay their tolls on the Triborough Bridge differently than we, we would treat a kid who jumps the turnstile in the subway, that there is some real sense of shared purpose uh, although we have obviously different facilities that are operated a little bit differently. And a lot of that has to do with merging and, you know, kind of connecting the two commuter railroads who historically operated as independent fiefdoms. Um, but, you know, I've got I, I just one one political plug. I've got a, a governor who um, is interested in, uh, you know, making sure that transit, which she thinks and, I, you know, she's I agree with her wholeheartedly drives the downstate economy makes New York possible. I've had a lot of support from the governor. So all those things we've been able to make progress on. It is, you know, sort of post COVID, we are living in a challenging time for mass transit. So what are some of the things that, you know, you're experiencing right now that aren't, that aren't organizational, but are, you know, fundamental to mass transit today? Well, the first thing is, you know, the, the economic situation of transit across the country has deteriorated dramatically because COVID brought on a loss of ridership. Most of that is due to the advent of work from home or hybrid work is, you know, now styled, um, which cut into the everyday commuter population. But New York has come a long way back. We're at 70 percent, you know, seven, plus 70 percent of pre pre-COVID paid ridership. And if you count in additional people who are riding for free, although they're not supposed to, um, we're more like 80% of pre-COVID. So we're in a lot better shape than many, many other places. That's number one. Number two is we dealt with the challenge, uh, the, the, the two to two and a half billion dollar uh, budget deficit that that reduced ridership brought on. Remember, the MTA is 40% of the United States mass transit riders by itself. Wow. Um, we are carry as many people as the next, I think, 10, 12 to 15 mass transit systems combined. Um, so we're, you know, somebody once said there's, you know, in, in America, there's, there's the MTA and there's everything else in mass transit. So you know, we so it's life or death in New York if you don't have mass transit. It, I always say that for New Yorkers, mass transit is like air and water. We need it to survive. 
because of our density, which is, you know, nine times Phoenix or Houston or a Sunbelt city like that. So we, the governor, under the governor's leadership, we actually attacked the budget deficit immediately, like this legislative session at the beginning of 2023, uh, the, the legislature enacted a financial plan with recurring revenues for the MTA that allowed us to put up a budget that has five years of balanced budgets. And the rest of the country is just waking up to the mass transit financial crisis. And I think we, we, we were really blessed that the political class um, was willing to step up. So those are, you know, those are, that was the principle, you know, the financial impact was the principal uh, legacy of COVID. But the second one, which we're still dealing with, uh, is that a lot of the sense of how do you behave in public spaces broke down. And that is reflected in the fare evasion statistics, which, you know, fare evasion in New York has gone from being a $200 million problem a year, maybe 250 to $700 million a year problem. So we have huge breakdown of, you know, sort of compliance in the public space. And, you know, there are other ways in which compliance is broken down, you know, the way people just kind of break rules and, and you, know, sm you know, smoking in public areas where they're not supposed to and so on. And it's not that that's inherently evil, it's that it sort of in a place like New York, where which is premised on the sharing of public space, it creates a sense of like this is not an inviting and welcoming and safe place when everybody's breaking all the rules. And that has its own reverberations in terms of people's willingness to come to work, in terms of their willingness to use mass transit, even if they're not victims of crime, if there isn't a massive crime problem, um, which there's not. You know, I, I emphasize, although you you know you see lots of stuff you know obviously disturbing videos and things do happen but we have seven and a half percent less crime than we did before COVID in the new york city subway system which is a, a, you know an accomplishment that goes cre credited to the mayor mayor adams as well as to governor hochel who both got serious about it but but that legacy of kind of how do you behave in public space has consequences not just to people breaking the rules but how do they deal with each other when they, you know, when they're when they're in a crowded space? How do how do people do conflicts erupt? Um, that that's a an issue that we're still struggling with. And then you add on the other legacy of uh, COVID, which you know a lot of big cities are struggling uh, are, are are seeing, which is that folks there are many folks who are struggling with mental health issues in the public space, which also is, you know, they need help, they need services. But it also contributes to a sense of disorder and some, for some people, discomfort. If you're on a, a closed subway car and somebody's having a psychotic episode, even if they're not going to hurt you, it is unsettling. So those are the two big COVID consequences for New York, at least. The financial consequences and the, you know, including the drop off in ridership um, and, uh, and also the sort of sense of public space. But, you know, if you, Jim, if you'll let me just go on a bit longer, I would say I always hasten to add, I am not, New York is not, and the MTA is not afraid of hybrid work. There's no reason we have to say, oh, we're dead because people are spending two days a week tapping away in their apartments or in their homes instead of getting on the train. It's not a terrible thing that, you know, at 8 a.m. on the Lexington Avenue line, you don't have to get to know the body contours of everybody around you because <laughs> it's so crush loaded. Um, 
it's still busy. It's still standing room on the Lex line at 8 a.m. It's just not, you know, Japanese style forcing people in. We, you know, if if people are tapping away, if young people are, are working away at home, I believe a couple of days a week, you want New York more than ever. You want to be able to walk out the door and have parks and culture and nightlife and restaurants and social opportunities, whether Tinder assisted or not. Um, <laughs> and so New York doesn't fear hybrid work. We just need a new financial model for mass transit. And we got it thanks to Governor Hochul and the legislature. It, that, that really was a sea change. But to, to hear you talk about how the MTA just fits into the broader society is actually really interesting. Because, you know, from 30,000 feet, running a transportation system can seem like it is a complex logistical puzzle, but it is, it's not logistics. You know, to your point, there are so many things in there that are just part of our society that have to be grappled with when running a transportation system. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, and, and the scale is always important to bear in mind. I mean, we have uh, 472 stations in New York City subway system. We have, um, we have literally, I think we have 250 commuter rail stations. Um, we have, you know, millions and millions of people uh, coming to work every day in the central business district. And it's, that is why Mass transit as is so is, is for New York is an essential service, just like police, fire and sanitation. And that's my pitch to the politicians. Fund it that way. Got to have it. OK, so it, um, because this is a show about staffers and for staffers, um, let me ask you a question about that. It is complex. You have been a staffer. You're now CEO who relies on a lot of staff work. So. What separates the outstanding staffer from the average? Well, let me just say that nothing I've been able to accomplish at the MTA would have been remotely possible without the amazing team that I have. And um, I'm not going to name them all, but I feel like I should. Um, it's, it, it, it is one of, the, one of the things that I count as among my few talents is finding people who are way smarter than I am and getting them to come work with me. Um, and so you can't underestimate the value of your team. I mean, it's, it's, it is totally, everything depends on the caliber of people you work with. Um, but as far as like what it takes to be a staffer, the first thing I always tell people, you know, cause folks come, I've had an oddball career. So people come and say, well, how did you do this and that? What was, I say, I had no plan. I had no plan. My, you know, if you're going to be a staffer in government, the most important thing, there are two things, only two things that matter, which is you care about the substance enough to get up in the morning and want to work about it. And you respect the people that you're working with. You don't have to love them. <laughs> I, always, I always say that the definition of a professional is you figure out how to get lots of important stuff done with people you would choose not to socialize with. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, they, it makes a difference in government because government is, you know, the, the, the wheel, the grinding of the wheels is is greater than maybe in the private sector. And I've worked in both. Um, it's important to care about the substance. Um, doesn't have to be the only thing you care about, 
but you, you got to believe uh, in this, you know, believe that you want to make a difference in the substance. And then you have to respect the people that you're working with uh, enough to want to produce for them. But with that said, I also tell everybody government is being a staffer in government is the best place to get really interesting work early in your career. Because if you're willing, if you can do the work and you're willing to do the work, you will get responsibility much more quickly than in, in a private sector. In, in most private sector, especially big companies, there's such a routinized, structured way of rising through uh, that, you know, there are inhibitions in that. There's great training in that. And, and, and it, you know, usually, generally speaking, leads to a higher compensation outcome. But in government, if you can impress people with your your preparation, your know-how, and what you have to contribute, and your work ethic, you can get in a lot of responsibility very, very young. So, and a lot of experience that can go on to you know benefit you in other parts. And the other thing I always say to people is, do when you're a staffer, whatever level you are, you're the expert for your principal. Mm. So don't misunderstand that when you're supporting whether, whatever at whatever level of government, you're supporting somebody else who has a, a, you know, a scope of responsibility, you're their expert. They really want you to know everything about a subject and to be able to give them not just information, but also strategic advice, which, you know, if you're smart, you don't offer up first, but be the expert, be the person who really has dug into the subject, whatever it is. Um, and then, like I said, watch them flock to your door or to your cubicle, as the case may be, um, or to your WeWorks table, whatever it is, um, because uh, information, knowledge, um, is what gives you power in life in general, but especially in government where, you know, people are trying to handle so many different things at once that when they find somebody who really has done the homework and knows what they're talking about on this subject, they become very reliant. And again, it contributes to that dynamic of, hey, staffer, you may be young, but all of a sudden you got a lot of importance and responsibility. Yeah. And, and you're probably surrounded by people who are amazing resources, you know, who may have been at it for longer. And so go learn from them as you, as you build your, your own expertise. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's, uh, as a young person, you know, sometimes you have family responsibilities. Um, I, you know, early in my career, when I was single, I did not value work-life balance the way people talk about <laughs> now. Um, so however you're going to do it i have i have a couple of kids who are much more organized and methodical than i ever was um but the key is develop your expertise so that you can be the go-to person on whatever it is so when you are identifying talent you know and you are interviewing people to decide whether you want them to join your team do you have a favorite interview question or or set of questions you like to ask you know i i'm not that systematic about it. And I've never found that there was some, uh, you know, some magic question that would unearth who that person really is and what they would like be like to work with. I really do think I want to 
what I like to do is to try to get people talking uh, in an mm-hmm. interview. So it's not Q&A. It's really, you know, wh- you know, why are you interested in this? What have you done before that led you to this door, you know, moment? I don't think for me, there's never been a, a, a magic set of questions. It's really take seriously somebody's resume, get them talking about what they've done. I do like to sort of use the discussion to sort of figure out who they are and you know we're all trying to avoid getting personal in a way that's you know not the way things are done anymore but um but uh trying to get some sense of the person is super super important for me um but i tend to i tend to you know my my approach has been um a, a little uh uh cunning i would say which is I, I tend to gather in people from around the organization that I'm working with to come once I figure out who's smart and capable and uh, wants to to join whatever crazy mission I'm on. Um, they, there's a lot of lateral recruiting going on. <laughs> that is cunning. You know, a, a portion of your career that I skipped over, but is, is really important um, because it certainly shaped, uh, I'm sure, you uh, as a person. Um, and informs, you know, some of your approach today was after September 11th, which affected so many people's lives in uh, in so many ways. Um, a couple of years after 2001, you began um, and spent 15 years working to rebuild that site as president of World Trade Center Properties. Um, can you talk to us about that experience, which I know you know, now hearing you talk about public land use and transportation and and community support and listening to people and all all of the various you know inputs that must have gone into that sacred site um can you talk to us about what that experience was like and what some of the challenges were listen i think jim as you've already picked up you know my my whole career has been about new york um it, it has been the passion you know the one uh through line in my career and it was you know an incredible honor um and uh motivation to have the mission to not just to rebuild the world trade center site i, I always thought of it as we were going to create a better version of downtown that the way we could honor New York and those who sacrificed in God knows many different ways um, was to create a better version of New York that would, you know, that part of their legacy would be New York would be an even more, the things that brought them there, put it that way, were even stronger and more secure and more dynamic. And so, you know, there's a lot of really, really complicated stuff. There was site you know planning you know site planning land use planning there was uh architecture and design there was construction there was environmental issues there were community issues like crazy there was uh politics up the wazoo there were basic kind of real estate leasing (laughs) issues because we were building office buildings and when we started People said, what are you kidding? People are going to come back to the World Trade Center site and put their offices in tall buildings. What are you nuts? But in the end, 
we managed to come, we, and, and I, I worked for Larry Silverstein all those years, but worked very, very closely with all of the government entities, you know, Mayor Bloomberg and the governors, there were many of them, and the Port Authority and, and, and the community boards and so on and so on. What everybody in the end came around to was the idea that we were, it wasn't going to be identical to the past, but it could have all of the things that people aspired to have the World Trade Center be. It could be a place of commemoration with the memorial. It could be a place of, uh, with the fun and excitement of New York again, of you know, retail and public spaces and uh, open, open space. Uh, it could have performing arts, it could have uh, and, and and much more. And and I think in the end, all the thrashing around sort of reconfirmed my basic idea of that in New York, we don't have a, a you know, an established rational uh, way of resolving public issues. What we do is we, we yell and scream at each other in a really zero sum type way for a while. And then eventually we compromise and figure it all out. And then everybody ends up saying, well, that turned out just fine. <laughs> um, and uh, and we move forward, and, and the World Trade Center in downtown in general became a much more dynamic place after 9/11, notwithstanding the perception that you know downtown was over when when the terrorists attacked. So that was a great mission, um, but you know it brought me into contact with you know the MTA and a lot of other government, and at some point I said I'm ready to move on to a project that isn't just public private is isn't a hybrid public and private but is all public <laughs> it really is actually hard to imagine now with this site you know what it is today it's hard to imagine all of the all of the struggle that went through because obviously a lot of equities had to be balanced but it is such a success yeah. um, today and a place people love to come to visit and to work obviously yeah and to live yeah, I mean, it, you, you're quite right. I I go by it, and it always gives me a little bit of a positive jolt to see people and lights. And the Performing Arts Center is literally just opening now these days. I mean, that's wow. the last major component that's being done, but it's gorgeous. And Mayor Bloomberg paid for about half of it himself. Um, amazing to have a mayor who does that. Um, so, so we're, we're, we're pretty lucky in the future. I mean, obviously office, the office economy in New York is, is going through a period, but, um, downtown became a lot more interesting and, uh, and its population, its residential population tripled since nine 11. Wow. So you got all these people living downtown who weren't there before nine 11. And it's part of the dynamism that's emerged. Amazing. Okay, I only have two more questions for you. Yeah. Uh, these are questions I like to ask uh, all my guests. One is, can you reflect back on a time when you made a mistake or something didn't go your way that, you know, you really, re you regretted or at least you recognize you would have done it differently and what you learned from that experience? Well, there's so many things that I regret. <laughs> but I still think I was right about all of them. Um, um, listen, um, you know, I, I, honestly, I'm not, nothing is, is, is springing to mind. Listen, I made a, a ton of mistakes. Most of, m most of um, 
the things I I I regret are not honestly I, I'm I'm known as pretty hard charging. The things that I regret are when I gave in too easily. <laughs> to fair and 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 the MTA job is is reinforcing it is you have to be willing to push to accomplish things because there's always going to be folks who have a different point of view. And if you're convinced you're right, stick with it. And, um, you know, in the end, doesn't mean there won't be a compromise or you may not lose, but I, 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 I rarely have regrets for that. I, that I stuck with principle or stuck with the course of action that I knew was right uh, for too long. And, and honestly, I have to give some of that, you know, the credit for that learning to Larry Silverstein, who is a um, sort of a one of kind New Yorker who's nine in his, I think he's 93 now, um, who spent, you know, the, the, who has spent the last 20 plus years of his life working on the World Trade Center. And, um, you know, has taken a lot of slings and arrows. Um, but the motto that he and I live by was never bet against New York. And, uh, and I, I learned from him that if you really believe that, you got to be willing to stick to your guns. And, um, and things will come out okay in the end. I love it. Um, okay, final question for you. I have this notion that maybe one day I'll be able to raise the money and get the permitting to build a, a national staffer hall of fame. And if I am, who would you nominate oh my God. to the staffer hall of fame? Uh, I, they, they're, they're, they're all people who work for me. I, I, I love them all equally, but I'll, I'll give you the names <laughs> when you, when you actually raise the money, Jim. <laughs> See, there we go. That's hard nosed New York negotiation right there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, listen, you know, if, if if you can raise the money for the National Staffer Hall of Fame, you'll prove that you should have been in the real estate business. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna Lever, I I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for the time you've given me and and all who listen to this. And and more importantly, thank you for your service uh, in both public service, which this you know this podcast is an ode to public service, but. But also, your time in the private sector has been a gift uh, to the city of New York, and your life has been a gift to that city. Um, so thank you for what you have done and what you are doing. Um, and again, thank you for your time today. Very kind of you. It's fun to be with you, Jim. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.